The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we've been exploring in this in this class for the last many weeks the uh, Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And continuing that, um, I'll start with a little bit of an overview. Um, we're moving into the topic of effort, how we make effort in this practice, and what we make effort towards, so the wise effort aspect of the Eightfold Path, but a little bit of an overview of the Eightfold Path in general. Um, this is a kind of a, a shifting point in the, in the path. The, the Eightfold Path, is, we could say, is a set of tools or a set of uh, practices that the, the Buddha offers us in terms of how to live our lives, how to um, shift our perspective around our experience to begin to uh, recognize and understand how we struggle, how and why we struggle and suffer in, in our experience and the possibility of transforming our um, mind, our relationship to the world. It's, this practice is looking at what's under our agency, essentially, what aspects of suffering are, connect, are, are under our agency and looking at how those can be transformed. The, the, the teachings of the Buddha acknowledge that there will be struggle and suffering in the, in the world. There will be things that happen that are very unpleasant. Things that happen that are pleasant. Things that happen that are neutral. And yet our usual relationship to those is when things are unpleasant, we have a lot of reactivity. We don't like it. We want to fight it. We want to fix it, change it. And this is not inherently a problem to want to change uh, something that is um, uh, challenging or difficult in the world or unjust in the world. This is not inherently a problem. And yet the, the, the heart that connects with the world, it may be connecting to that injustice with anger and hatred or it may be connecting with that injustice with compassion and care and wanting to alleviate suffering. And so the, the, uh, the Buddha's teachings point us more towards um, noticing how the reactivity, how the anger, the hatred, actually affects our system, affects our body and mind, creates stress, creates struggle, creates suffering internally. And how when we meet the world with a heart that's more open and compassionate, that suffering and stress begins to, to fall away. And we have a different uh, relationship with the world. And so the Eightfold Path is essentially a set of tools that help us to transform our relationship to the world. It begins, the Eightfold Path begins with wise understanding and wise intention, which is essentially um, beginning to understand a, a different perspective on, on, on the world, a different, a different, a a, a different worldview, essentially. 
our habitual worldview, the one that perhaps we've been taught, most of us have been taught from our families, from our cultures, just from kind of almost in a way also from the way our body is, or kind of our, uh, our organism tends to habitually relate to the world in terms of, you know, when things are pleasant, we like it, we want to go towards it. When things are unpleasant, we want to get rid of it. You know, most creatures, most even single-celled organisms have this kind of mechanism. And yet, in our human system, it's not an automatic mechanism. It's not a kind of a hardwired mechanism. It's more of a um, that that movement towards pleasant, the movement towards unpleasant, is kind of mediated by all kinds of views and beliefs and ideas. This, this is the way our human system works. There's a, a whole bunch of kind of thoughts and ideas and views and beliefs that motivate us in terms of how we respond to the world. And so our usual worldview goes something like how I can be happy, the way I can be happy is if I can get what I want, get rid of what I don't want, and make that you know, the, the, the getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, that, that's what makes me happy. And so that's what I need to do in my life. And this may be having um, and getting rid of, you know, things that material things that we like or material things that we don't like around us. It can be in that realm. But it also can be in the realm of um, being surrounded by people that... Uh, kind of appreciate us or um, to want to have people respect us and admire us. This is a big part of our motivation, I think, in in our lives that, uh, you know, kind of socially we want want people to... um, to appreciate us. And there's... And this is, again, this is not inherently an issue. It's not inherently a problem. And yet what we tend to do with this kind of movement is to um, give away our happiness. Uh, essentially, we, we, um, we believe that in order to be happy, we have to have other people thinking certain things about us. And so, you know, it's like we give our happiness over to the opinions and views and beliefs of other people. This is, I mean, we see in our own minds how our opinions, our views, and our beliefs kind of change all the time. And so when we are kind of relying on the opinions and views and beliefs of others in order for ourselves to be happy, we are relying on something that's very unreliable. And the Buddha points to the possibility of a whole different approach to happiness. Uh, he, he says that the, the kind of motivations around um, wanting to have certain things you know, trying to essentially arrange the world to be a certain way. Arrange the material things in the world to be a certain way around us, kind of creating our little cocoon, <laughs> you know, creating a cocoon that has things we like, not, not things that we don't like, people that, that uh, we love and appreciate and, and not people that uh, drive us nuts. Um, having people in that bubble that... Uh, appreciate us. And so we kind of try to navigate our lives to create this little cocoon so that we can feel safe and protected. 
And again, the, the feeling of wanting to be safe and protected is not inherently a problem. It's these motivations of kind of control, essentially, believing that we should be able to control the world. And, you know, the, the Buddha points to how inherently the world is not so controllable. That this project of controlling, trying to create this cocoon, is destined to, um, you know, get cracks in it, to have leaks in terms of um, the, the, the unpleasant and the pleasant. And so we spend our time trying to patch up all those cracks, thinking that that's where the happiness is, by arranging the world. And the Buddha points to a different place for happiness, that is, when we, um, when we see that this movement towards, you know, getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, is motivated by some basic qualities of greed, of aversion, of delusion, and that those experiences, those, those um, states of mind themselves, the state of mind of greed, the state of mind of aversion, is already stressful in our system. And that the, 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 a different approach might be to uh, explore what it, it might mean to let go of greed and aversion, or, or at least first of all to begin to recognize that this greed and aversion is a form of stress and suffering in its own uh, right in its own experience that the and that actually the majority of our um, stress and suffering we think our stress and suffering is about the conditions in the world we think our stress and suffering is is about the arrangement of our cocoon but the um, the Buddha points to that the most at actually most of the stress and suffering and this is a, this is a teaching that he points to this is something that he's, he found in his own experience as he explored his own mind. That most of the stress and suffering that we experience is because of how we are in relationship. It's because of that greed and that aversion and that delusion. That without that greed, that aversion, that delusion, our minds can navigate a variety of conditions with, with ease, with peace. And it's navigating it not in the sense of you're sitting in some like mountaintop or cave necessarily and like, you know, shielded from all of the stuff in the world. We can be walking through the world, navigating it without that stress and suffering, without that reactivity of greed and aversion. But it doesn't mean that we're just like, oh yeah, that's good, whatever. It's much more of a, oh, there's some suffering, you know, there's, there's some struggle in the world, there's some injustice. And the heart kind of that is not tight with greed, aversion, and delusion begins to kind of like, well, what might be a way to support the people who are struggling or to help the people who are, you know, perpetuating that suffering begin to understand this is not something that's, uh, that's okay. And so this movement towards an open heart doesn't mean that we're not, not engaged in the world. And so this is, this is a kind of framing of the wisdom, essentially, the wisdom component of the Eightfold Path, a shift to a new worldview. It's, 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 it's not an intuitive shift. The, the usual way of relating to the world, out of greed, out of aversion, out of delusion. You know, aversion, for instance, 
that inversion, for instance, to injustice or that anger about injustice, that, when we are caught in that state of mind, that state of anger is going to um, have us believe that this is the only way to respond. And that if, in fact, we don't respond with this anger, then it means we don't care. So our, our, um, you know, our hearts are kind of confused in a way because that, that, so the state of anger is kind of obscuring the possibility of a new or different relationship to injustice in this case, that of compassion, that of the heart that's open and receptive and responsive to the world. And so the, this, uh, this shift is not so intuitive because our, our cultures, our families, our kind of the way our systems have worked, have habitually um, operated from these perspectives of greed and aversion and delusion. And so this, um, this kind of shift, a shift of worldview, um, you know, the, the, the basic shifts are, you know, that the greed, the aversion, the delusion are a big piece of our struggle, our suffering. And that those underlie a whole set of states of, of mind, a, a lot of reactive um, emotions. Anger, frustration, confusion, hostility, pride, arrogance, um, um, desire, a whole, a whole host of things that have us acting out of these um, habitual states of greed, aversion, and delusion. And there's a, a kind of a framing of these, um, the states that kind of arise based on those three fundamental uh, roots and, the, and that um, the states that arise in relationship to those, the greed, aversion, and delusion, are what we would call unskillful, unhelpful states of mind. That they tend to motivate us to, to act in ways that are unskillful. They tend to motivate us to, um, so, so to, to act in the world in ways that are unskillful, but also they tend to um, uh, reinforce themselves with any, um, anything that our mind con- frequently engages with, that frequently engages with anger, aversion, pride, arrogance, it will tend to reinforce that quality in the mind. This is, uh, this is an old teaching from the Buddha. Whatever we frequently ponder becomes the inclination of the mind. And certainly it's borne out through um, science these these days the the neuropsychology of how our brains work and so the um this uh kind of movement of greed aversion and delusion creating these unhelpful states of mind they're they're unhelpful in terms of what they put into the world and they're also unhelpful in terms of what they tend to cultivate internally because when we look at these states when we look at greed, aversion, and delusion, we see that they hurt. You know, they, they, they actually feel, as I said earlier, they feel stressful. There's constriction in the body, tension and tightness. We can feel that, uh, that stress. We can feel that struggle, that suffering. 
from these states of mind. And so the, the, um, the teachings point to those as both unhelpful for what they put into the world, the, the kind of, you know, when we're angry, we tend to lash out at people. We tend to say things that may not be friendly or kind. When we um, uh, have a lot of greed, we may tend to, um, you know, try to m- maneuver and manipulate uh, the world and, and to, to get things that we want, even to the point of taking things that are not offered, potentially. And so the... the um, uh, the movements of greed, aversion, and delusion tend to create stress and harm in the world and also create this internal stress. And so this is this perspective offered in this first aspect of the Eightfold Path, what we could call the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding. And wise intention comes out of that understanding that we begin to be, you know, have the intention to... Um, shift our relationship to the world when we begin to when we have a sense of maybe some confidence or or maybe even just a, a sense of a willingness to try something different this was my case in the early days of my practice i i could see how much i was suffering in particular i could see how much i was suffering by the amount of anger i had you know that that and the the way that my mind kind of believed it should be able to control the world and this kind of there was there's both the anger at things that were going on and the anger that it didn't work to use that anger to control the world you know there there was this double kind of thing going on with the anger and um you know at certain point it's like wow you know this has not worked there was a kind of a, a recognition this has not been a skillful strategy does anybody know some other strategy and about that time, a friend sent me a book about Buddhism. And the strategy that was recommended there was, you know, in terms of my anger, the strategy that was recommended was, notice your anger as an experience. And, you know, I thought that, what, what on earth? How is that going to do anything? How is that going to help? But at the same time, because I had pretty much felt like I'd exhausted the possibilities of how I knew to live my life, and I was really miserable. I thought, well, I don't get how this is going to work, but I'm willing to try. I'm willing to, to see what happens if I try this. And so that was kind of the, you know, I heard this little tiny wisdom teaching. I said, so this is a little bit of wisdom of the Buddha. It's like, see if you can notice what the experience, what's the human experience of your difficulty? What's the human experience of anger? And in, in, uh, as opposed to what our typical response is, is when there's anger, trying to follow through on it to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want, make sure people believe what we think they should believe out of, out of, uh, about us, make sure that people understand, you know, that, that or become as miserable as we are because they've, they've made us angry or hurt us. And so that strategy, I, I could see that strategy had not helped in my experience. I was pretty miserable. And so the, this shift, <clears throat> this little shift of, okay, well, what is it like rather than to follow through on the anger to notice that this is what it's like to be a human being that's angry? And so the, um, that experience 
that little bit of wisdom motivated an intention to try something new. So that's that first section of the Eightfold Path, this, uh, what, the wisdom section. And then the, the middle section of the Eightfold Path is really about ethical conduct. It's about how we engage in the world. And this is a pointing to you know, those, those states, the, the greed, the aversion, the delusion, how they tend to affect the world and in particular around some very high level kind of things about you know the way we the the way we engage in the world um to refrain from taking life to refrain from taking what's not given to refrain from creating harm through our sexuality to refrain from false speech divisive speech to refrain from harsh speech and idle chatter is included and to refrain from livelihoods that create harm. So this section of the path about ethics is really about looking at how our actions affect the world and to have a motivation or an intention of non-harming. And the understanding is essentially that these three roots of greed, aversion, and delusion tend to motivate actions that might be harmful. And so to kind of uh, help us with beginning to recognize those basic roots, the proposal is to avoid certain actions, refraining from these, uh, these uh, actions that cause harm in the world. And again, this is also a pointing to, if we want to, the whole motivation of the direction here, the Buddha in his journey uh, started with this question, is it possible for human beings to be happy, to be free from suffering? And um, one of the uh, one of the um, understandings here, the expressions here, is if we want to be happy, then it's useful to not to do things that make others suffer. That to to act out of unkindness, to act out of uh, the greed, the aversion, the delusion. And so this, um, this is this aspect of the Eightfold Path to, uh, to refrain from uh, actions that create harm, to, to generate a, a field of harmony around us. And this, this kind of harmony that, that we uh, explore begins to uh, rebound on our own hearts and minds. And we begin to uh, feel more... Um, uh, kind of a, a sense of appreciation for the, uh, what, what this non-harming does for us. It, it does things for the world, but it also does things for us internally. There's a, a teaching that points to how when we engage in this way, when we don't harm others, then um, we, we give the gift to others of not needing to be afraid in our presence, but also give ourselves a gift of blamelessness, that we need not feel regret or guilt, that, that our hearts and minds can have an ease to them, and that this can bring delight and joy into the heart. And so the, um, this section of the path um, kind of looks at how, how we might be in relationship to our communities, our families, and the world. I like this aspect of the Eightfold Path. I like that the, the teachings that the Buddha offered are not simply about 
turning inward and looking at our own hearts and minds, but looking at, uh, at our experience in relationship to our families, our communities, and our friends. This is a big part of what he pointed to. Cleaning up our relationship to our, our um, communities as we uh, begin to be curious about how are we, how are we um, acting in the world. This is a piece of coming into ease in our own hearts and minds, too. And so the, the next part of the Eightfold Path is the part that kind of begins more the inner exploration. So we, we have some wisdom that kind of aims us in the direction of how to um, shift our worldview. And then, then the, first, the next part is how are we in relationship to the world, in relationship to communities. And this, this third part of the Eightfold Path, it's um, gen- called the Samadhi section of the Eightfold Path or the, the concentration section or the collecting of the mind section. Um, it's comprised of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. This is more looking internally. And so the ethics section is, is asking us to look into our relationship externally. And the, uh, this third part is asking us to look to, into our relationship from this perspective of wisdom, into our relationship with ourselves. And so wise effort is the beginning of that exploration, looking inwardly. And the, the pointing of wise effort is how we engage. How do we engage in this exploration internally? And the, um, the teachings of wise effort point to come back to this kind of um, balance of or the... Um, the understanding of certain qualities of mind, those motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion, as being unhelpful, as motivating both unhelpful actions externally and rebounding on us with stress. The experience itself of aversion. When aversion arises in the system, there is tension and tightness. There is uh, suffering. There is a kind of a feeling of uh, stress and str- struggle and dissatisfaction and unease. And so internally there's already some, some stress and suffering. And so the, the, the wise effort is asking us to look at and begin to distinguish in our experience these unhelpful qualities of mind and balancing those helpful qualities of mind. So the unhelpful qualities of mind based in greed, aversion, and delusion, and the helpful qualities of mind said to be based in their opposites. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Or perhaps more positively, or more a positive framing of those, uh, non-greed, generosity, non-aversion, love, and non-delusion, wisdom. And this wisdom, again, pointing back to the what is it that creates stress? What is it that uh, generates struggle and a different perspective on how to relate to the world and our experience? So, um, so the wise effort, the way we engage, 
is framed in terms of these unskillful and skillful qualities. It's, uh, it's got this, these four components to it. And today I'm just going to do a, a really brief overview and then go into more depth in this uh, aspect of the Eightfold Path in the coming weeks. Um, so these, there's, with each of these, with unskillful and skillful mind states, um, wise effort is um, asking us to abandon unskillful mind states that have come up to avoid unskillful mind states that have not yet come up. So there's two aspects of wise effort on the side of the unskillful mind states and two on the side of skillful mind states. So to, uh, to cultivate, to cultivate um, skillful mind states that have not yet come up and to maintain or support skillful mind states that have come up. And so, you know, the unskillful mind states, again, based in greed, aversion, delusion, these are states like anger, confusion, frustration, irritation, hostility, rage, uh, pride, arrogance, um, even things like boredom, a whole host of, of emotions that create a sense of things are off, but usually in that offness we're blaming something in the world as opposed to being curious about the state itself. And so the, the, those whole host of, of emotions there. And then on the wholesome side, there's a, also a whole host of, of states of mind, some of which feel emotional to us, some of which we put into the emotional camp, and some of which feel more like, um, you know, just more like a mental qualities. So some of the emotional ones are, are things like love, and compassion, and joy, delight, um, patience, maybe not quite an emotional tone, but, but that flavor. And then others, um, you know, concentration, the, the mind being very settled and stable, that's also a wholesome quality of mind. Equanimity, balance of mind, tranquility or calm, peace, the mind that is at ease, peaceful, also a wholesome state of mind. Um, qualities like interest and curiosity about experience as experience. That's another wholesome state of mind. Um, so there's a, a lot of, of wholesome states of mind also that we begin to, what this path begins to help us to do is to recognize the unwholesome and change our relationship to it, our sense of that's the way to happiness based on following acting out those uh, unhelpful emotions uh, and to kind of orient us more towards the, um, uh, the wholesome. And so, the <clears throat> so these four, um, the first, I'm going to use the language that uh, the translators use and it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit awkward, but um, it captures it. So the first right effort, the effort towards the non-arising of unhelpful or unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Now, there are three negatives in that sentence. What does it mean? So, um, the non-arising. So, so, well, states that have not yet arisen. So, these are, these are things that are not present in our mind. So, we're fine. We're kind of going through life and recognizing, you know, Okay, things are, things are going along pretty well. And so, not particularly anger or frustration present. 
And so the, the effort towards the non-arising of those difficult states would be a kind of a recognition or a beginning to be curious about what gets us into trouble. What is it that kind of takes us down the garden path of that difficulty? And learning to avoid conditions that lead us there. And so this is, this is a kind of a learning about the conditionality of things that tend to take us into struggle, things that tend to take us into these reactive mind states. And so at first glance, this seems as though it might mean something like, um, okay, so if you notice that whenever you're in a particular situation with a particular person, for instance, that you tend to get reactive, that you tend to get angry, that it would mean avoiding that person. Well, that's one strategy. That is a strategy. And sometimes that is exactly the strategy that's needed. If you find yourself in a a situation of danger, for instance, you know, standing around and saying, oh, gee, well, what is it like to feel this sense of danger when somebody's like, you know, getting ready to beat you? It's like, that is a time to take yourself out of that situation. So there are definitely times in our, in our lives that that kind of approach is helpful. It, it avoids the, unhelpful, the unskillful states in your own mind and it also helps the other person to not um, perpetuate harm. And yet there are also times when um, um, the avoiding might be um, kind of a curiosity around, okay, so here I am, I'm going into this situation. The avoiding of the um, uh, unhelpful states that arise when you're in a particular relationship or in a conversation where you tend to have some charge arise. You know, so you know that you're walking into that situation. A curiosity about what happens there. This is a... Um, so you might, you might think that um, avoiding the person would be the way to avoid the reactivity that arises in connection with that person. But that in a way is reinforcing the idea that that person has some kind of control in a way. That you have no power when you get into that, that situation with that person, then essentially they've got the power to push your button. And so that's a kind of a giving away of your own agency to the other person, a believing that, that you don't have that power to maintain some balance or some kind of calm or equanimity in that situation. And so this is another kind of exploration around the avoiding, is to um, be curious about what happens when you, ha- when you get into that situation. So there's things that the person's saying, ways that they look, and then there's responses inside to, the, to that person. And as we begin to be curious about that, we begin to see that, okay, so when that person said that thing, that's when this charge arose. That's when this reactivity arose. And so we begin to, to recognize that Okay, so, so that is a trigger, perhaps, that thing that that person said is a trigger. And um, the curiosity, so this is where mindfulness comes in. We begin to get curious about, well, what is it like to watch that? Watch that feeling of reactivity. 
So this is this begins to also step into the to the next piece, the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. And so you're you're with the person and you're seeing something challenging arise internally. Being mindful of it. I said I said the other the, a little while ago that you know the teaching around noticing the anger when it arises didn't make any sense to me. You know, that I thought it, it would, that would just encourage the anger. And yet the, this approach of, well, what is it like to know the anger when it's arising? As I started playing with that, and even the first few weeks of playing with that, I began to understand a different, something different happened when I was aware, oh, this, this is anger. This is the experience of anger. Instead of what, what generally happened is the mind kind of projecting into the thoughts and the ideas and the beliefs about the anger in the other person and kind of that, that kind of like tumbling in the anger with thoughts, that, that whole mind of just like being, being caught in the anger. That didn't happen. That actually, that mind tumbling in that way is a reinforcement of the anger. It's a believing the anger is somehow going to solve the problem. You know, what do I need to do? How do I fix that? How do I make sure that person gets so miserable that they go away or whatever? Um, And so instead of that, the mindfulness was, okay, well, what is it like to feel this anger? And so there's a a kind of an analogy of of, uh, gears, you know, when we are caught in a mind state like anger, it's like the gears are engaged. And the gear of anger churns the gears of thoughts, which then churns the gears of anger, which turns more thoughts. And they just like, they go faster and faster together. And with the mindfulness, what I began to recognize is like, that's like disengaging the gears. When we disengage the gears, the gears don't stop immediately. But they're no longer feeding each other. They're no longer reinforcing each other. And so what I did begin to recognize is, oh, when I do this, when I turn and, and get familiar, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being that's, ang- that's angry. There was some capacity to set it aside, to let go of it, to not be caught in the rabbit hole of it or pulled into the quicksand of it. There was more opportunity in the mind when the gears got disengaged to say, okay, wow. Well, first of all, the first thing I noticed with this was that anger hurts, that I was suffering. That was actually a real revelation because I was unaware, actually, of that. I was so focused on how miserable I was going to make the other person that I was unaware that I was making myself miserable first. So that was one piece of understanding that came, turning with mindfulness to a reactive state. So this is, this is how this second aspect of the Eightfold Path works, is that in, um, in looking at unwholesome states that have arisen with mindfulness, the first thing we begin to notice is that state itself is painful that we have potentially not noticed that in the movement to do something in the world. 
that that kind of the idea of the getting rid of the thing or getting the thing in the world has kind of overtaken our minds and we have not seen you know that idea of oh yeah it'll be great when that person is so miserable that kind of fantasy or that idea is uh, obscuring the fact or the experience of this is, is painful here and now. And the mind kind of giving over its uh, um, happiness to some possible future moment and, and not really recognizing how much suffering was happening here and now in this system. And so the mindfulness, kind of disengaging the gears, gives us a, a kind of an opportunity to let go. So this is the second, the effort to abandon or let go of unwholesome states that have arisen. Mindfulness is a huge support for this. This kind of disengaging the gears takes us out of the place where we're being kind of automatically driven by the thoughts and the beliefs of the, of the difficult state. Disengaging the gears gives us a little more space to choose something else. And so the, the abandoning can have two sides to it, actually, this abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen. Part of it is this disengagement of the gears, that we're abandoning the way, our habitual way of relating to these difficult experiences. We're letting go of acting out on them and instead being curious about them, allowing that disengagement of the gears. That's a form of abandoning because we are no longer being driven by that state and instead are, are watching it and learning something about it. So learning about the painfulness of it. And this is actually not a mistake. You know, it is, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it might seem like, you know, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to uh, feel the pain of these reactive states? Well, we are experiencing the stress and the suffering of them, even if we're not directly feeling it. And it's kind of accumulating, it's building, and we are reinforcing the pattern of the difficult state through engaging in those, that, that feedback relationship with the gears. And it's creating more of that stress and suffering internally. So that's what's happening, even when we're not aware of it. And at some point it begins to kind of surface that, wow, I'm really miserable, which happened for me. You know, it's kind of like what got me into this practice in the first place is this recognition of how miserable I was. And so the... Um, the kind of curiosity to begin to like, okay, well, something, this, this teacher says, try paying attention to this experience. And I felt, you know, in that disengagement of the gears, I felt the suffering of it. And over the subsequent weeks, the benefit that I saw of noticing the suffering of it was not that I had to actually do too much, but more that kind of the system our system actually wants to not suffer. Our organism is kind of built with this movement in the direction of well-being. And that mechanism that we have in our system to move in the direction of well-being, both fortunately and unfortunately, I think, is mediated through this worldview that we have. And so the belief that acting on my anger is where it's going to take me to, what's going to take me to well-being is kind of 
a confused relationship to this strategy to move towards well-being. And as our system begins to recognize, oh, actually, this anger is already suffering. As soon as that anger arises, there's this suffering here, this struggle, this stress. And so our system begins to navigate its way to a different relationship, to a way of letting go or abandoning these states. And so the, um, this aspect of abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen, a big piece of this is mindfulness, getting to know the pain of these unskillful states, and allowing our natural mechanism towards well-being to do its job. And over time with practice, sometimes we see as the stronger the practice gets, the more, the more um, powerful the mindfulness is. Sometimes we see just simply watching our minds, seeing, oh, there's that, there's that frustration arising. And our, um, our system begins to say, oh yeah, that frustration, mm, that, that doesn't need to be here. There's another way to relate to this experience. I can be curious about it instead of frustrated. And the frustration just diminishing because of the power of the mindfulness. And there are many times when we're, we're just simply in that, okay, disengaged gears. We're seeing kind of the spinning of the reactive mind state. And, um, and we're feeling the, the, the stress and the suffering of that. And we may be able to choose actively say, okay, yep, yep, that's there. And at this point, having seen that that's happening, maybe I can put my attention on something else. So this is another approach with the abandoning of unhelpful states. Once we've seen them, once we've recognized them, sometimes we can actively do things to redirect our attention, to let go of that focus. So when I first began noticing in, in this story of anger, you know, first began noticing, wow, I'm aware of anger while it's happening, and boy, it sure hurts. You know, when I first began noticing this, it's like, well, I have no idea what to do with this. And, and yet the, you know, it's kind of like, well, okay, I, I, yeah, I see that, that hurts, and I guess, well, I guess I go back to work. And that actually was a... Um, a useful thing to do. It kind of took the mind out of that kind of uh, pattern of the thoughts and the anger and put the attention on something kind of more neutral. Just this thing that I was doing at work. So this is a strategy sometimes that can be helpful when we recognize, okay, here's a reactive state. Wow, it feels pretty strong. Hmm, if I stay here hanging out with this, I'm probably going to get hooked again. Maybe putting your attention someplace else can be helpful. So this is a big part of what I'll, I'll talk about next week. This, not next week, the following week. I'm away next week. Um, this kind of strategy of working with difficulty. How do we do that when difficult states are up? <clears throat> so this, uh, this part about abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen is a huge part of our practice. On the other side is the um, <clears throat> cultivation and uh, maintaining or strengthening of wholesome states. And so there's, 
you know, basically uh, the wholesome states of love, of compassion, of kindness, of mindfulness is a wholesome state, of concentration. Um, you know, some basic uh, ways to do this is that we, you know, again with mindfulness, mindfulness is our friend, both with the unwholesome states and the wholesome states. In the unwholesome states, you know, when we bring mindfulness to those, it tends to create the conditions for those to get weaker. Because our system recognizes, oh, these are suffering, these are not helpful. When we bring mindfulness to wholesome states, when we notice love, when we notice delight, when we notice curiosity and joy, our system understands in the moment, oh, this is the way to well-being. And so it tends to strengthen those. And so mindfulness, when wholesome states have arisen, you know, when I, I read this, this one about the effort to sustain wholesome mind states when they have already arisen, I thought, well, why would I need to work on that? I mean, wouldn't that just be normal? Well, not necessarily, because we don't normally actually recognize them in this way of, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being that's feeling joy. We are... Um, taking that joy or that, we may even miss it. I mean, I, I would like miss it. I would like not even notice it. I was so oriented towards finding things that were wrong in the world so that I could fix them in order to be happy that I usually missed the happiness. So this was, a, is a, was actually a big one for me is when I could begin to recognize, oh, there's happiness here. And what's that like? It's like, wow, that actually... That's, that's lovely. And I don't have to now like pick up something that is wrong in order to get rid of it. I can just rest with this. So this, this kind of recognition with um, mindfulness of these wholesome states is a big part of their, of their cultivation. And then the other side is the effort to encourage or arouse wholesome mind states when they've not yet arisen. And so this is a kind of more of a, um, it's more practice-based in a way. It is beginning to um, find ways to support wholesome states. And so, for instance, the teaching or the practice of cultivating loving kindness falls in this camp where we actively encourage wholesome qualities of mind, reflecting on what supports that. So that's, that's, a, that's a big piece of this, of this aspect, is actively finding ways to support the cultivation of wholesome states. The uh, cultivation of this also happens very naturally as we, do, as we work with the first two, as we work with letting go of unwholesome states. Because partly because these two sides are not separate, that the, the reduction of the unwholesome states, the, and, and this is maybe if we think about the framing of the way the unwholesome and the wholesome are described. So the unwholesome is described, the unhelpful states are described in terms of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so that as those diminish, we end up with the mind not having greed, aversion, and delusion. And the definition of the roots of the wholesome are non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. 
And so that as those unwholesome states diminish, the qualities in the mind are, are very naturally resonant with the development of the wholesome. And sometimes we can actually begin to see this, even as we are recognizing something challenging. That, that kind of, at some point in my practice, I began recognizing, oh wow, there's anger here. Anger's arising. And in the mind that knew that, like, oh yeah, this, 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 this mind can see that without kind of getting caught in it. There was a delight. There was a kind of a, an, a happiness that the seeing could be there. And so this is, is uh, you know, kind of stepping back from the uh, watching, you know, so, so, you know, you're watching something challenging, kind of taking in, wow, the mind can do this. And the, 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 the attitude in the mind or the relationship in the mind to that experience, when there's a balance in the mind, there's all kinds of beautiful qualities that are, that are being cultivated there. This, this uh, patience is being cultivated and a, and a sense of, of evenness of mind and maybe even a calmness of mind. And so as those unwholesome states begin to diminish, very, the very um, witnessing of them cultivates the wholesome states and also the, um, uh, the diminishment of those then as, the, as, they're, as they're weakening as greed, aversion, and delusion end, there is this kind of more natural arising of love and compassion and joy. And so this is the cultivation of wholesome states. That These two are not separate. We are not only abandoning the unwholesome. In that abandoning of the unwholesome, we are cultivating the wholesome. We are maintaining the wholesome. In the cultivating and the maintaining of the of the wholesome, we are simultaneously um, creating the conditions for uh, the future that the unwholesome states will not arise as much. And so these four really work together. They're not independent. It's not like we do one and then we move on to the next one. They con- they connect together. And so um, it's time to stop and. Um, I'll continue, we'll continue on this theme in the coming weeks. So thank you for your attention.